0: Okay, so last week we, we ended with Saul approving of the death of Stephen, right? Not last week, two weeks ago. And we saw those who were stoning Stephen laying their cloaks at the feet of a young man named Saul. And him gladly approving of this murder. Tonight, we're going to see one of the most stunning transformations in the Bible as Saul intensely ramps up his persecution of the church until he is graciously laid out by Jesus on the road to Damascus. As always, I love you guys. We have a lot to cover. So let's jump right in. Would you go with me to Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through 3? And committed them to prison. So Saul absolutely starts terrorizing the church. He's young, he's smart, and we know he's zealous, right? Think of the man we see boldly arguing for and defending the gospel in Romans on the other side. <laughs> Imagine this man, and you'll understand the tour de force that Saul is as he's ravaging the church. This persecution is fierce and it's brutal. But as Lavar Burton would say on reading Rainbow, you don't have to take my word for it. Here are the Apostle Paul's own words as he describes this time in Acts twenty-six nine through eleven. Paul writes, "I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth, and I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison." after receiving authority from the chief priests. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme in raging fury against them. I persecuted them even to foreign cities. So he's imprisoning, murdering, and persecuting Christians with raging fury. Is These are is is his own words. Let that sink in. Right, that's terrifying. (laughs) This is Saul, as he is introduced to us tonight in in Acts eight and nine. This is the man that approves of Stephen's murder, and then goes on to replicate it over and over again, even to foreign cities, as we're going to see later. He's basically become a bounty hunter against the church. Later on, we're going to see him laid out on the road to Damascus. Damascus is not in Israel. (laughs) He's strongly persecuting the church. But before we get too caught up in the persecution, we should note that the Bible doesn't focus on it as we might think. Now, instead of this season of persecution, which is terrible, we only see it taking up 3 verses. And we get 3 verses on the persecution, and we get 37 on the spread of the gospel. <laughs> right? Why? I think you could probably answer this by now, but it's because persecution leads to the advance of the gospel. It always has, and it always will. And that is our theme tonight. Short and simple, persecution always leads to the advance of the gospel. So, if the Bible focuses on the spread of the gospel, so should we, right? So let's look at verses 4 through 8. So right away in in verse 4, we see the response and highlight of this entire chapter. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. So did the threat of Saul cause them to fear to the point where they stopped sharing the gospel? Nope. We see them continuing to preach the word. And in verses 5-8, through we read how Philip is going down to Samaria to preach the gospel. And if you've ever done any light reading of the Bible, you realize the relationship between the Jewish people and the Samaritans was not good. And that's putting it lightly. That's why Jesus' parable about the Samaritan that helped the Jewish man on the side, side of the road was so scandalous to his hearers. right? The Jewish Samaritans were so disliked by the Jews that they were thought so low of that the very thought of a Samaritan helping a Jew was unthinkable. And we see this dynamic in a double shock of Jesus not only talking to a woman, but a Samaritan woman in the story at the well. The disciples just couldn't believe that Jesus would be doing that, right? But ironically, the Samaritans actually had roots with the Jewish people, but were not regarded by the Jews as legitimate in any way. However, because of this Jewish heritage, the Samaritans actually had their own expectation of a Messiah. So long story short, they weren't liked by Jews. So for Philip to go down to Samaria is important. It's important because we are witnessing the gospel expanding, right? We're, we're seeing this again. It's going to the ends of the earth, as Jesus said in Acts 1. And we should really be excited about this because this is just the beginning of the gospel breaking out to the rest of the world. This is the fulfillment of the promise that God gave to Abraham in the Old Testament that through his line, all nations of the world would be blessed. And as Philip preaches to the Samaritans, we, you and I, will eventually receive the gospel as those who are far off yet brought near. So in verses 48, we see Philip preaching the gospel and healing many. And I love verse 8. I think it's so good for us to remember the full effect of the gospel's advance. What do we see after the gospel is proclaimed in verse 8? The Samaritans have much joy. Amen, right? Amen. So for the sake of time, moving on, I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of verses 9 through 15, where we are introduced to Simon the Magician. He was a big shot in Samaria because he performed magic, and magic makes people very interested. He apparently sees the hearts of the people coming to Jesus, and at least on the surface, it looks like he believes and is baptized. More on him soon. Put a, put, a, put a finger there. But go with me to verses 14 through 17. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of Jesus. Then they laid hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. So we see Peter and John coming and praying for the Samaritans to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Some context here. This appears to be a unique situation as the Holy Spirit usually came immediately upon believers, upon their conversion. So what's going on here? Why haven't the Samaritans received the Holy Spirit yet? Some commentators explain this as God's ensuring unity in the church between the Jewish and the Samaritan Christians. Meaning that by Peter and John seeing the Holy Spirit, being a part of this, the Holy Spirit, being received by the Samaritans, there is going to be no doubt that their faith is genuine, and more importantly, that they are one and the same in the faith. So you remember the bad blood between these two specific groups. Okay? So it's easy to imagine skepticism with the, with the Jewish believers not believing that the Samaritans had actually come to Christ. But God stops this potential division in its tracks, right? Remember barriers to the gospel? Lays it out immediately as the Jewish Christians are eyewitnesses of the Holy Spirit being received by the Samaritans. So there's immediate unity where there had been such division for centuries. There is now immediate unity in Christ. So this, in this shared faith, they continue then to go up through Samaria and preach the gospel However, there is a fly in the ointment here, as not everyone is concerned about the unity of the church <laughs> and the spread of the gospel. Again, going Cliff Notes version on verses 18 through 24, we'll go back to Simon for a minute. Okay? And I encourage you to go back and read these chapters. I fly through this for the sake of time, but it's so good. I mean, you've got to read it. But through, through verses 18 through 24, we, he, we see Simon coming back. Okay? So he sees that the Holy Spirit comes on the Samaritans. And he thinks this is the greatest magic trick that has ever been done. He wants it. So apparently he doesn't receive it too. So there's, there's also some of that going on here. And he offers Peter and John some money. It, he says, hey, would you just lay some hands on me so I can get that Holy Spirit and you know give that to other people? And it's good to remember he's really just acting in his, in his nature because magicians often exchange money for tricks. So he was—he was thinking, "Oh, this is a good trick. I want that. I want to add that to my my repertoire? You know, the Holy Spirit—that that looked like a good one." But Peter and John are quick to rebuke him because obviously he's way off here, right? This is not a magic trick. Offering money for the Holy Spirit reveals Simon's heart, and Peter is quick to point it out. Okay. So if you look at at verses twenty-three, twenty through twenty-three, Peter offers a strong rebuke. I mean. Very strong rebuke and tells him to repent and that he has no part in what's happening in the Holy Spirit at this point. And these are really strong words. And and, and honestly, it could have meant that Simon wasn't actually a true believer. And I think his response in verse 24 after uh, Peter lays the lumber on him is pretty telling. He says, pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. He he doesn't actually show any sign that he's going to, repent or change he just asked Peter to, to pray for him so did he repent and hopefully um, but it's important to remember that the gospel the Holy Spirit the power that we've received through them we've been studying and reading about it cannot be bought it cannot be sold it's simply given as a gift end of story so quick life application, you, you do still see this spirit of Simon the Magician in the modern era with preachers who tie financial giving to blessing, right? I don't know if you've seen that before. Um, I first witnessed it firsthand in, in um, the Bahamas when I was down there on the E-team years ago. You know, people living in poverty outside pretty much any kind of tourist area. And the preachers will dress up in their suits and they'll say, hey, listen, if you give money, you'll receive the blessing that I've received. Um, so you see that. And and I think it's good to be able to see that identify it as sinful and, and obviously not biblical. You know, so if you see it, remember this passage, God and his blessing, his gift of the Holy Spirit. It cannot be bought or sold. Okay. So moving on. Here we go. Uh, we're going to see yet another instance of the gospel advance in the face of Saul's persecution. Because again, this is all going on while Saul was ravaging the church. Our next story, we're going to see Philip uh, moved by the Holy Spirit to share the gospel with an Ethiopian, Ethiopian eunuch. So go to verses 26 uh, through 40. And I'm actually going to read the full full passage. So now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Arise and go toward the south, to the road that goes down to Jerusalem, to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. That's a good gig. He had come to Jerusalem to worship, and was returning, seated in his chariot, and was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized them. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he preached through, as he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. So long passage there, but um, we see this Ethiopian eunuch on the road, basically back to Africa, going down through Gaza, and the eunuch was commonly referred to as. Um, could have two two interpretations. It could be uh, his title as treasurer, as it says he was the treasurer for all of Candace's um, treasure, or could have referred to him being having been emasculated. Either way, this eunuch is a God-fearer who would have come to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. He would not have been allowed to enter into the inner courts of the temple, which makes his reading of Isaiah significant because Philip finds him reading about the prophecy of Jesus in Isaiah 53, 7, and 8, as, as we saw there. And he doesn't know this yet, but this prophesied Messiah, this Jesus, has actually made a way for him to come directly to God, right? There is no outer court for him anymore. The temple veil was torn. So, interestingly, just a few chapters later in Isaiah 56, 3-5, we, we actually see a pro- prophecy and a promise made directly to eunuchs. So, check this out. Anthony? Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, The Lord will surely separate me from his people. And let not the eunuch say, Behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord, To the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths, who choose the things that please me and hold fast my covenant, I will give in my house and within my walls a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. So if he just kept reading, I hope he did. I hope he did. it, It says that Philip started with that scripture. And just a few chapters later, you get that promise, that prophecy, right to him, saying, No matter No matter whether or not you have children, you have heirs, I'm going to give you a name that is everlasting. You're not going to be cut off. And how this man would have tied the, the prophecy of Jesus, the fulfillment of Scripture, and this prophecy and this promise to him. It's absolutely incredible. So Philip, moved by the Holy Spirit, explains the gospel to the Ethiopian eunuch and baptizes him along the way. And again, can't miss it. He did, Philip disappears in verse 39, and, and the eunuch went on his way rejoicing. Like, that is the effect of the gospel. He went on his way back to Ethiopia Ethiopia rejoicing at his newfound faith, at his salvation and again, it's the fulfillment of Jesus words that the gospel would go to the ends of the earth. This new Christian brother goes back to Africa and then tells countless people about Christ, right just based on this. Holy Spirit-driven interaction with Philip. Indeed, like from start to finish, the whole story is about God moving, yeah, from the instructions to Philip disappearing. And and just to give you again some some uh, Middle Eastern geography, so he finds himself in Azotus. That is thirty miles away <laughs> from where he was in Gaza. And what, is, what does he keep doing? Keeps preaching the gospel. So again, remember, remember our theme. Saul's persecution of the church led to this advance of the gospel. Philip is pushed out. He is directed to Gaza. He interacts with this eunuch who takes the gospel then to Africa. Do you think that in that moment that that is what Saul thought was going on? (laughs) I don't think so. But... Again, persecution always leads to the advance of the Gospel. So are you listening to the leading of the Holy Spirit throughout your day? He is still moving us to share the Gospel. I don't know if you'll disappear and end up 30 miles away, but I know that every day the Holy Spirit is guiding us to the words that we should say, to the people that we need to talk to. So are you listening There are people all around us who still need to hear the good news of Christ. You cannot turn on the news. You cannot see the world and think any differently. Like we have the truth. So are you listening to the leading of the Holy Spirit? All right. Final leg leg of the journey. We're going to go to chapter 9. We're going to see Saul come face to face with Jesus. And as I said, I said in the beginning, be graciously laid out <laughs> on the road to Damascus. I played football for, for a solid one year. Okay, So I am no means like good at football. But one of the things that sticks in my mind was the concept of a pancake block. And, and a pancake block would be like if Stephen was running full speed at me, and I was running full speed at him. And I got absolutely laid out. <laughs> Not that this would ever happen intentionally, right? But the physics of it. You see this on the football field sometimes. Just <laughs> just, just, physics. So this was what came to my mind when I thought of like, you know, Saul. Rah, and then just absolutely, literally laid out. I mean, we got stickers on our helmets if we got pancake, gave a pancake block. God got a sticker on this one. <laughs> Sorry. It's a terrible analogy, but I had, I had some fun with it. So let's read verses 1 through 9. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus. Remember, Damascus, foreign land, foreign city. Whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. So Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him to Damascus. And for three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. So we see. We see Saul in his raging fury, breathing threats and murder, pursuing Christians into foreign lands. As I said, Damascus, look at a map. It's not, it's not necessarily close to Jerusalem. So he's really going out of his way to terrorize the church. But not for long, right? <laughs> On this road to Damascus, we see a bright light knock him to the ground and the voice of Jesus confront him. Saul will later say that he actually sees Jesus in this bright light. So he literally comes face to face with the one he is persecuting. Because while Saul thinks he's going after the church, Jesus doesn't see it that way, right? Jesus asks Paul in verse 4, Why are you persecuting me? Jesus makes it clear that an attack on the church is an attack on him. <laughs> and poor Saul, he is so confused at this point. <laughs> he doesn't even know who, who this is, right? He asks, Who are you, Lord? <laughs> and we see such grace in the Lord's response, right? I mean, if anyone deserved not just to be laid out, but wiped out, it was Saul. And yet we see Jesus in verses four and oh, sorry, five and six answering Saul I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city and you will be told what to do. Don't miss that but. Okay? Don't miss that but. It's important. (laughs) Jesus is saying, I'm God. You're persecuting me. You are attacking the holy God, but in my grace, I will not only spare you, but I'll use you to advance my kingdom. So the men who are with Saul lead him to Damascus where he sits blind and doesn't eat or drink for three days. Let that sink in. That's a pretty wild story. right? Imagine. I always like saying, because Acts is such a story, you know, put yourself in Saul's shoes. (laughs) So go with me to verses 10 through uh, 19. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. And laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. So God chooses to work through a man named Ananias not the Ananias that we saw in chapter 5, he chooses to work through a vision that he gives to Ananias about Saul. He tells him to go to exactly where Saul is staying, on the street called Straight, which you can actually still go to today. It's one of the oldest still-used cities apparently uh, streets in the world. Fun fact. And he tells him to go there and lay hands on him. And we see Ananias is quick to make sure the Lord knows who he's talking about, right? Verse 13, saying, Lord, you know this is Saul. (laughs) You're asking me to go to, right? It's a fair question. I think I would have probably asked the same thing, you know. And again, we see the grace and sovereignty of God on full display in his response to Ananias in verse 15, right? So he says, go. For he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. So God tells Ananias that he has chosen Saul to carry his name to Gentiles and to kings. And we know that's exactly what Saul, the Apostle Paul, ends up doing. He goes to the Gentiles. He speaks to the Israelites. He goes before kings. And that he will, the one who caused so much suffering will now suffer for his For his sake. So we see Ananias go in faith uh, to Saul, lay hands on him, and in verse 18, we read that something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and that he received the Holy Spirit. He then is baptized, eats, and is strengthened. Again, to wrap up tonight, I'm going to go Cliff Notes version on the rest of the chapter. So after his conversion, Saul goes off to Arabia for three years. If you remember, bonus points if you do, if you remember our Galatians study from fall of 2019, um, we read in in chapter 1 of Galatians how he talked about this season at the beginning of his letter to the Galatians. He will then come back to Damascus, preach in the synagogues, be chased from Damascus by those who are seeking his life. He's going to go to Jerusalem, or he's going to finally meet Peter, James, and after being initially met with fear and skepticism by the even the disciples weren't sure about this guy until Barnabas is like, He's cool. He's cool. He's he's finally welcomed in, he preaches in Jerusalem, again, more people want to kill him. So the disciples send him off to his hometown of Tarsus. Tarsus. And he will stay there doing some homegrown ministry until Barnabas comes to find him in chapter eleven. So We'll catch, up with, we'll catch up with Saul later, but just taking that all in, you know, like the transformation that Saul went through is incredible. But to see that the persecution that came at his hands led to such an advance of the gospel at the same time, right? We see this in the gospel going to the Samaritans, where Philip goes. We see it uh, when he shares the gospel with the Ethiopian eunuch, and we see it in Saul himself. This is, this is the most amazing example. I mean, to me, like Saul's own persecution of the church leads him to become the greatest proponent for the advance of the gospel. <laughs> he becomes, in himself, a, a, a chosen instrument to share the gospel. Because of his persecution. I mean, what greater example of, of again, the theme, like, persecution leading to the advance of the gospel. Paul's a walking testimony of it, right? So, it's just incredible. That irony is super profound to this, that Paul becomes, you know, the, the, one of the greatest proponents of the gospel, as we'll, we'll see. So, let's just uh, wrap up on verse 31. So, as I went cliff notes version, scroll down to... We'll turn to verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. And walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, it multiplied. So as we've seen the folks the whole time, the Holy Spirit continues to work in the church. The church continues to multiply in peace, in persecution, The church, the advance of the gospel, it can't be stopped. So to conclude, let me ask you, how do you react to persecution? How do you react when your faith comes under attack? Do you shrink back? Do you stand firm? Do you use it as an opportunity to share the gospel? If not, pray as the early church did, as we read a few weeks ago for the opportunity to suffer in sharing the gospel. They considered it an honor in light of the salvation that they received to suffer for the sake of the gospel. And I believe we should walk in the same manner. Our faith is no less valuable because we received it centuries later than the first church. So pray now for boldness. Boldness a theme that we've heard over and over again. Pray now for boldness. Increase your knowledge of the Scriptures. Pray that as as Jesus opened the minds of the disciples to understand the Scriptures, that He would open up your mind to understand the Scriptures so that when the time comes of testing, of persecution, you know how to respond with hope, with a defense for the hope that you have. And use these stories, as we're going through Acts, I keep saying it, use these stories of the Holy Spirit working to encourage your heart and move you to share the gospel with those around you.